Welcome back to another edition of the Changemaker Podcast. I'm your host, Deke Copenhaver. And today my guest is an old friend of mine, um, Dr. Mark Golston. And Mark, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of your bio and a few things about you, but if I had to read the whole thing and all your accomplishments, we we wouldn't get through the show, frankly. So he's a, you're a rather accomplished man. But um, Mark is a renowned psychiatrist, best-selling author of multiple books, executive coach, TEDx speaker, co-founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum, host of my Wake Up Call podcast, and just a, an all-around great guy and really a change-making leader. Welcome to the Changemaker Podcast, hosted by Deke Copenhaver. Deke is the author of The Changemaker, a Forbes publishing book that has reached number one on Amazon on multiple occasions and in multiple categories like management skills and total quality management. During this podcast, Deke interviews exceptional change-making leaders. Deke currently operates Copenhaver Consulting, where he helps local governments and other public organizations maximize their potential. He's also a sought-after public speaker. We hope that The Changemaker has an impact on you today and that you find takeaways that make you a better leader in your life. Now, here's Deke. Mark, welcome to the podcast. I missed you, my friend. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, well, it's good to see your face too. So so for our listeners, it's interesting how we met. I believe it was February of 2016. I was speaking for a group that you're a member of in Los Angeles called Metal International, Media, Entertainment, Technology, Alpha Leaders. And so we met that day, that Saturday when I spoke. The next day was was actually Valentine's Day. And I had asked my wife if I could extend my trip so that I could go on the metal hike that day. And I believe we met hiking through Topanga Canyon and just hit it off. Absolutely. I remember that. We were, uh, we, you had, we had each other at hello and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing is they, they always say that on those hikes and you've been, you're a member of metal, but that there are, it, those are co-ed, whereas the meetings are not co-ed. So all these young, beautiful girls. And I'm like, I, you know, you got stuck it, with it me. Up, I'm not hanging out with young, beautiful girls. You, you and I are hanging out together, but, but I, I, I think it's a wonderful relationship and I've just, I've enjoyed staying in touch through, throughout the years. Well, so have I, and you were a wonderful guest on my podcast, my wake up call. Well, Mark, you are um, the best selling author of multiple books, but, but you actually wrote two books, authored two books during the pandemic. So tell our audience a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, I guess, what is it? Grass doesn't grow under my feet, whatever you call it. Uh, so during the pandemic, I was blessed to co-author two books. One is called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And the subtitle is How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. Uh, it really is about how anyone can begin to heal from PTSD instead of how people can begin to get over it instead of just getting past it. And there's a difference. And then the second book was Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. And HarperCollins approached me and with the idea, you know, you know, we're thinking of a couple books from two of our different imprints. And I said, I only want to do it if I can co-author it with this amazing woman who was on my podcast. 
Her name is uh, Dr. Diana Handel. And I read a book that she wrote called Responsible, a memoir. And on her 100th day as CEO at Long Beach Memorial Hospital, a really big hospital uh, in Southern California, an employee of the month came in and killed his two supervisors and himself on the premises. And she led the hospital back to financial and psychological soundness. And where she really had me at, uh, uh, at more than hello is uh, she said, you know, the hospital was in great shape about six years later, and I realized they deserved the healthy CEO, and I wasn't because I didn't know that I had PTSD because I'd still get triggered because, you know, they didn't change the premises, and and I knew the place where the, the uh, killings took place, and so she resigned and got her PTSD treated and now she consults to organizations organizations and companies around trauma and I knew she would be a great co-author so why cope when you can heal a lot of the focus there is on you as an individual and trauma to triumph is how do you lead an organization through something like the pandemic and not just survive it but thrive on the other side mm -hmm. and she lived that and she does that so it's been a wonderful relationship. And just like you, uh, she and you are leaders that the world needs. And so I, I, I was so honored to introduce her to the world through those two books. You and I, Mark, have had so many conversations about leadership and what good leadership looks like. But a big key to that is compassion and vulnerability. And I just authored a blog for Forbes that I, where I highlighted Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and she she really led through compassion. She was very decisive with what she did. But being a student of leadership, talk to our listeners a little bit about how you see vulnerability, and and we'll get into this heartfelt leadership playing a role in being a change making and transformative leader. Well, something that I've developed because I'm always evolving. Uh, I developed something called design thinking leadership. And for your listeners who don't know what design thinking is, it's worth checking into. Uh, I didn't realize it, but I've approached life from a design thinking approach for more years than design thinking has been around. And, uh, and design thinking is a way to creatively solve problems. But what really gets to me, the first step of design thinking is you need to let go of almost anything you know and empathize with whoever the people are that you're trying to lead through change, uh, sell a product to, and, and let go of anything you know, any preconceived notions, and just empathize with them. So uh, I, I'm also so I'm this founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum, and one of my first articles was, if you look up Design Thinking Leadership Newsweek, my last name, you'll find it. And I put myself in the, uh, I, I created in my mind's eye an avatar, meaning, you know, kind of a representative of people and what they look for in a leader. And tell me if you, if you can resonate with this. And so I thought, what I would look for in a leader and what I think the world is looking for and what I believe Diana Handel and you are is I'd want to be able to trust them, have confidence in them, feel safe with them, feel respect, uh, would want to 
be able to admire them, would want to be able to actually like them, and uh, and would like to feel inspired by them. And if you say, and if you're listening in and you think that's too woo-woo, well, what do you think of a leader that instead of trust, you distrust? Instead of confidence, you doubt them. Instead of safety, you feel unsafe. Instead of respect, you feel you can't respect them. Instead of admiring them, you feel embarrassed for them. Instead of liking them, you dislike them. Uh, and instead of being inspired, they just leave you blah. And so, uh, and so I've come up with, and I do executive coaching, but what I tell my clients is I will only coach you if you want to grow into being this leader. So at this stage of my life, I feel an urgency about the kind of leaders that the world needs. And then here are the observable behaviors uh, that result in your being that kind of leader. And Diana is amazing with all of these, and you are too. Uh, so to be a leader that causes people to feel trust, confidence, safety, respect, uh, admiration, like liking and uh, inspired, you need to be unflappable under pressure, but you can't be robotic. So unflappable, present, uh, taking charge without being controlling, knowledgeable, so you don't shoot from the hip, wise, so you know what's important and what is worth fighting for and what's you know worth just sort of saying, you know, well, well let's not bother with that. You need to be someone who uh, 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 stands up uh, for the right things and stands up to people who violate those things. You need to be someone who doesn't take yourself too seriously. I mean, you don't have to be an over overly a jokester, but, you know, I think uh, in some of those self-deprecating moments that JFK was known for, uh, Obama was known for. You know, I, I think people having a sense of humor about themselves it makes it easy to like them. And uh, and also you have to have this, uh, you have to be able to, did you give the people hope? And so when I coach people, I say every time, every time you're giving a presentation, every time you're meeting anyone, Rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 on all of those things. Also, you should be gracious and humble. And, uh, and I try to apply them to myself. You know, I'll tell you, no, 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 but I'll say, like I'll mention, like I'll mention here, you know, uh, I've, I've had uh, eight mentors. They've all died. My last one was Larry King. I had breakfast with him every, every morning for two years <laughs> before COVID. So there's a little name dropping there. But what my friends have told me in the business world, they said, they said, Mark, Mark, you know, Give yourself a break. At least you know the people that you're name dropping about. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that brings more street cred to my show because I know somebody that knows Larry King. But but talk about I think mentoring is such an important part of leadership, and I agree with you with the humility. But you mentioned you had eight mentors in your life, and I know one of them was just is literally a legend in leadership, and that's Warren Bennis. Yeah, absolutely. And Warren Bennis had all those qualities. Uh, plus, he had a lot of charm. I mean, he was one of the most charming people you could ever meet. And uh, I'll tell you what's amazing about mentors. And I, I mentor probably 
50 people anywhere from two or three times a week, someone who's become like a protege, because I told them, I don't want to do, I don't want to talk anymore. I don't want to do speeches. I don't want to travel. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you everything I know and we're going to launch you. And I love this guy. And, uh, uh, but one of the amazing things about mentors is, and this is my own personal feeling is getting the esteem from someone you really respect. There's almost nothing better than that. So the last thing I would ever want to do with any of my mentors is disappoint them. And what was interesting is I would never tell them I was going to do something unless I was 150% sure I was going to do it. Now, they would be more forgiving of me than I was. But uh, what I loved about having these mentors is when I made a commitment to them, it, w- it became top of mind. I have to fulfill that commitment. In fact, I want to give a tip to your listeners. If you're having trouble following through on something and you know you need to do it and it will make your life much better. If you have, if you don't have a mentor, if you have someone who you don't want to disappoint, whose esteem matters to you, reach out to that person and say, I'd like your help with something. And, you know, my guess is you have such a relationship. They'll say, okay, you know, happy to help. What's this about? You could say, there, this one thing I've been putting off doing, and I want to motivate myself to finally do it. And what I want to do is tell you what it is. And, you know, every time we get together, you don't even have to remember what it is. All you have to do is say to me is, how's that thing you told me you wanted to do going? Because the last thing I would want to do is come up short and make excuses. I mean, it really works. It's really, it's really quite remarkable. So there's a number of things I wouldn't tell Warren Bennis or other people unless I was so sure that I was you know, going that, to do it. It's funny that you say that, and it reminds me of a situation that I had in my life. So we here in Augusta have the largest um, half Ironman in North America. So the second year we had it when I was still in office, or no, the first year we had it, I went down when I was mayor of Augusta. I went down to thank everybody for coming, to thank the athletes for coming. And so I got up on the stage and I said, and I also want to tell you, you're making me feel lazy. So next year I'm in. Because I figured if I said that from the stage, that there was no way I couldn't do it. But that's, and that's part of leadership too, is there has to be accountability. And I think that that's, once again, vulnerability, accountability, you know, ethical, principled leadership is so important in today's world. And and frankly, it's just, I, we have seen great examples of good leadership throughout COVID. I'm sure you have, but politically, things haven't always looked so good. I, I'm personally the eternal optimist. And I thought being a former politician, I thought, gosh, now we're in the midst of a pandemic and both parties can work across party lines and they can be statesmen. Eh, that, uh, what's your take on that? That didn't seem to work out too well. Yeah, um, really disappointed uh, in that. But I want to go back to vulnerability because uh, there's something I want to share with your listeners that they can do because I, I feel uh, I look pretty good for my age. I'm in my 70s, but I, I want to share what I know in the world. I'm part of a group called Marshall Goldsmith's MG100, which are 
you know, some of the some of the best coaches in the world. I feel humbled to be part of that. But something that I've been uh, sharing with companies, and you don't need me to do it, uh, about uh, how to make the most, uh, how, how to use the pandemic to help your culture. Because I did this after 9-11. After 9-11, I was called into organizations, uh, groups of CEOs. I remember I did a meeting for 150 CEOs in South Bend, Indiana. It was one of those leadership associations, kind uh, of kind of like a vistage, but something like that. And what we did, it was fascinating. And I'll send you a link to the article I wrote about it. Uh, I, I said, uh, I'd like you to think about a dark time in your life. So they were all tables. You can do this in your company. You can do this on a Zoom call. I'd like you to think about a dark time in your life that you never thought you'd get through, but you did. And what it showed you is you were stronger than you thought you were, and you were more adaptive than you thought you were. And also pick a time when someone special helped you through it. So when I would do these presentations, uh, people would be crying within about 45 seconds because they were just sharing this courageous vulnerability that they'd gotten through. And I want to bring that up because uh, there's, there's, there's a difference between courageous vulnerability that you've gotten through and learned from and vulnerability that you're currently in the middle of. And, and I have mixed feelings about that because you know, when you can share a past vulnerability that you got through, people really respect that, admire that, trust that, have confidence in that. But the problem when you're sharing a present vulnerability is it can be uh, if you're in a meeting and, and, and you're saying, let's do a check-in. I mean, you know, something that you and I have talked about offline, if, if someone shares well, this past weekend, you know, one of our relatives' uh, sons died by suicide. Or someone in my family, you know, you know, had a stroke and died. You know, when you share a current vulnerability, you have to work around that in a meeting because human nature is, well, this, you know, being compassionate and helping this person right now is more important. But but we have an agenda. I, I mean, we've assembled people and we all care about this person. So I'm just sharing that. And if that happens, because some people will take vulnerability too literally, and, and, and the point is you have to get business done in meetings. And so be prepared if someone shares something like that. And I think as a leader, you want to note that and you want to sh show compassion and say, ah, that sounds awful. We're so sorry to hear that. That's too important to not be able to give it our undivided attention. So let's make sure that after the meeting, we get you a place uh, from maybe someone in the meeting or someone in the company that can help you by giving you the undivided attention that you deserve. So you want to note it. Mm -hmm. But if you follow what I'm saying, it, it, I've been parsing this whole, I like to parse words. So just vulnerability, uh, it works well when people talk about something they've been through. Uh, and you know, learn from it's it. interesting talking about vulnerability, though. I So in my book, I discuss um, several instances we talk about. You and I have talked about the mental health impact of COVID. But 
several instances. I lost my first wife to suicide, lost a young man that was a dear friend of mine, local musician, have actually, we've lost three people we know since COVID hit, but it, it's, but you have to talk about those things to, to, in order to heal. But I had a friend that when he read my book, he said, it's not at all what I thought it would be. It's just you getting up and walking around naked for nine chapters. But I think that that being open, that's a connection point. And <laughs> after shortly after my book came out, I was doing an interview and a friend of mine who's a reporter, has a local talk show said, you know, you talk a lot in, about vulnerability in your book, but in politics, can you really be vulnerable? And I said, yes, absolutely. And he said, all the time. I said, absolutely. It, that was what connected me to the people I serve. And I think as a as a speaker, as a podcast host, being open and honest and not not guarded is really what helps connect you to people. But it's and I do want to get into a little bit about um, for our listeners. Just I've shared with you my concerns for the younger generation going through COVID, and you know the studies I've done have shown that it's really eighteen to twenty six year olds are being impacted the most from a mental health perspective. So talk about your viewpoint of that. And as, as a, you know, you have a level of expertise in suicide prevention. I'd love to talk a little bit about you worked with the FBI on hostage negotiations. So, but let's talk about the, the mental health aspect of COVID. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I trained as a psychiatrist at UCLA and one of my earliest mentors was one of was to suicide prevention what Warren Bennis was to leadership. His name was Dr. Ed Schneidman. He co-founded the Suicide Prevention Centers in Washington and Los Angeles. I think he founded the American Association of Suicidology. And when I started out as a psychiatrist, one of the good fortunes I had was that uh, I had a fellowship that got canceled a couple of weeks before I finished my training. So I figured, well, I'll go out. Maybe some people will refer people to me. So Dr. Schneidman would refer these still suicidal patients who had to be discharged from UCLA. So they weren't acutely suicidal, and you couldn't keep them there forever. But in order for them to be discharged, you needed to find a doctor outside who would be willing to see them. And I was one of his main referral sources. And why that was very fortunate for me is because if I had worked in an institution and when I was seeing these patients, I would be much more mindful of checking all the boxes. But what happened is I learned to listen into people's eyes. And when I was with people who were feeling suicidal and I'd listen into their eyes and it's not like they were making eye contact with me because uh, many of them wouldn't, but what I would hear them screaming from their eyes even as they look almost lifeless, is you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. Yeah. So I felt this conflict Well, I could check boxes, which I would have to do if I was in an institution. Well, you know, what was the chief complaint? Uh, what, uh, what was your differential diagnosis? What did you think? Such and such. And I went through all of that. I wasn't exactly, a, you know, a rogue psychiatrist. But what I did is I had the choice of listening into their eyes where it took me versus checking boxes. And it was really interesting because one of the ways that Dr. Schneidman, who could do anything he wanted because he was so well published and so well regarded, when he would sit with someone, 
these were some some of his questions which I which I actually built upon. So he'd be with someone and his voice would be inviting. Instead of checking boxes, he'd say something such a he'd say these questions. Where does it hurt? What hurts? How much does it hurt? When it's at its worst, what does it make you want to do? When it's been at its worst, what have you done? And I've added to those things. Uh, when you've been like that, how alone have you felt? And uh, and something that I've added, actually, I'm going to give four tips because a, uh, three years ago, someone who's become as close a friend to me as you are, a fellow named uh, uh, Jason Reed, he reached out to me because his 14-year-old son had died by suicide uh, a year earlier. And he did a TEDx talk called The Most Important Conversation You Can Have With Your Teenager. And he reached out to me. And uh, and what happened is he was on vacation with his wife celebrating how great their life was. And he got a text message from his 14-year-old. And it said, uh, 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 don't blame yourself. I'm sorry. Goodbye. And so he started screaming and he called home to his mother-in-law and he said, go find Ryan. And she looked around the house and she went up into the attic and he'd hung himself. And he left two notes, uh, which, which they found in a top drawer. One was the password to his computer and he'd been looking for ways to kill himself for months. And then the other uh, post-it note said, tell my story. So Jason did a documentary with over $200,000 of his own money called Tell My Story. And it's still available for free. If you look up Tell My Story film, you'll find it. And he tried to figure out why his son died by suicide. And he went up and down the West Coast of the United States. And he spoke to people who had tried to kill themselves, people who treated people, suicide prevention centers. I'm in the last 10 minutes of the, uh, of the documentary. And since then, he and I have been doing presentations to an organization called EO, which is like a junior part of YPO. So YPO is Young President's Organization. EO is for younger members uh, who haven't yet reached the YPO status. And so he and I did an EO Arizona before COVID. And then a month ago, we did an EO Seattle, which had a fair amount of entrepreneurs. And he shared his story about how he felt it was his fault. And then I talked about what I, my understanding of what goes on inside the minds of people who want to die uh, and they want the pain to go away. And we got a perfect 10 score from everybody who attended, which is quite a feat. So in uh, this coming October, we're going to speak to 500 EO members up in Reno. Uh, and, and what he talked about, so if people listening in, I think it's worth uh, this is worth noting. One of, the, one of the observations he made to me, which sticks with me, he said, you know, when you talk to your teenager and you say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm great. They're usually good. But when they mm -hmm. say, I'm fine, they're not. What they're usually saying is, leave me alone. And, and he said he felt it was his fault because he said, I'm an entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur, you solve things. People come to you all day long and you solve problems. So I don't listen to anything without turning it into a problem to solve. 
He said, also, I never showed my vulnerability because, you know, I don't want to worry my family. You know, if you're going to go down the entrepreneur track, you're going to <laughs> fail as often as you succeed. And but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put that on my family. And he basically said, I made it impossible for my son to open up to me. Because I would give him solutions. And eventually we'd just say, I'm fine. And he would smile. And, um, and it's, and his, what was fascinating, uh, his, he did a Goldcast video and Goldcast uh, is a company that uh, has videos on the internet. And some of them, the top ones are watched 150 million times. And his was watched wow. 8 million times. And he spoke to about a dozen, a dozen male founders and uh, and he created a video called Teen Mental Health Webinar. If you look teen, up Teen Mental Health Webinar on YouTube, you'll find it. And it shows his Goldcast presentation for about nine minutes. And then I speak for about 25 minutes talking to parents. This is, this is how to get through to your teenager. This is how you get them to open up. And uh, I hope people will check that out. And I love to give some tactics if I might, because if we're talking about this, you may have a teenager or a spouse who you're worried about and who won't open up. So here are, the, here are four prompts that, are, that I've given out. They're on the internet and they're now gonna be available in this podcast. Uh, this is the lifesaver segment, not the change maker segment. And if you have a teenager that you're worried about or someone else you're worried about, but especially a teenager, they don't like heart-to-heart -heart talks if you initiate it. They hate them. If they initiate yeah. one, you better listen to them. But what it looks like is you're worried about that teenager, and these this is the exact script. And so people can listen to this and write it down and replay it. You say to your teenager, um, you know, a lot of us parents are worried about our kids, and we read in the news how... The, all of our kids are stressed out. They were, you know, closed down. They're opened up. Uh, there's a lot of depression, anxiety, and self-destruction. And, and all of us parents are kind of worried. And uh, can I just, you know, talk to you a few uh, uh, about a few things and ask you a few things? And if you're lucky, you'll have a teenager that says, okay. <laughs> That's if you're lucky. Uh, and, and then here are the four prompts. Uh, and it's best to do this while you're doing an activity, while you're driving, you know, so it's not eyeball to eyeball, which they can't stand. You say, at its, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? They're going to say, what? Because this is not the usual conversation. At, at, your, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? And if they say, pretty awful. This, you're going to employ something that uh, I named surgical empathy, which I introduce in Why Cope When You Can Heal, one of my books. And if they say uh, pretty awful, you say pretty awful or very awful. Okay, okay, very awful. Uh, and then the second prompt is, and when you're feeling that way, how alone are you capable of feeling with it? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay, all alone. Then the third prompt is, take me to the last time you felt that. They're going to say, what? You're going to say, take me to the last time you felt it. 
Was it at 2.30 in the morning a couple nights ago? We heard you kind of walking around in your room for a while. And here's an interesting thing. When you get someone to describe something that they went through so clearly that you can visualize it, they re-feel it and they're not alone. So if you were to say that, take me to the last time, maybe 2.30, two nights ago, and they say, yeah, I couldn't get to sleep. Well, what was happening? Well, I tried to get to sleep. I couldn't. Well, what happened next? I got really frustrated. Then what? You know, I started hitting the pillow. Uh, that, that sounds really awful. What happened next? Well, I started walking around. And then I didn't know whether to put my fist through the wall or my head. Wow. What happened next? I started looking for your outdated Benadryl <laughs> tablets. I couldn't find them. Oh, what happened next? I thought I was going out of my mind and then the sun rose. And then the fourth prompt is you, at that point, you say to your child, look at me. Uh, I have a big favor to ask you. The next time you feel that way or you're even headed in that direction, you do whatever it takes to get your mom or your dad and my attention our undivided attention, because we're preoccupied with so many things. And you won't know this until you're a parent. There is nothing more important to each of us than uh, connecting with you when you're feeling alone in hell. And I need you to do that. So can you follow those prompts? I mean, it's uh, it's not the most comfortable conversation. No, and... and that's something that people need to know, especially these days. And I, I do think, you know, part of good leadership, I mean, whether you're a parent, I mean, if you're, you don't have to be a CEO or an elected official. I mean, if you're a parent, you're a leader in your household, but is to have those difficult conversations. And, and here again, you've got one of your books over your shoulder, just listen. So I, I remember, and I think I've shared this story with you. When Melissa and I were first married, you know, here again, you know, problem solver. That's what guys do. So she had an issue and she was telling me, you know, this, 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 and this. And I'm like, well, you need to do this or you need to do that. And she looked at me and she said, I don't want you to fix my problems. I just want you to listen to me. And that, that stuck with me for years to come. But I think that is part of being a good leader is being a good listener. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> Let me add a little neuroscience, because if you have leaders listening to it, uh, this people usually find what I'm about to tell you uh, really interesting, especially with the example of a spouse wanting you to just listen and not give them advice. And actually giving them advice makes it worse. Here's the reason. Here's just a little enough of neuroscience for the neuroscientists listening in to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll share it. I might get away with it with you, Deke. What happens is when people are stressed, when people are stressed, their cortisol goes up and cortisol triggers your body. Let's get ready because this is going to be stressful. And the higher the cortisol, the more it triggers a part of your brain that is called the amygdala. And the amygdala is like a point guard in the middle of your brain. And when it senses real stress or danger, it does something called an amygdala hijack. And what that means 
is it gives a signal to your brain to shunt the blood from your upper cortex into your lower brain to survive. So your upper cortex is our thinking. The amygdala sits in our uh, middle brain, which is a, a feeling brain. And then the survival, fight, flight, or freeze brain, reptilian, is the lower brain. And, and so what happens is when a person is frustrated or stressed out, the reason they want you to just listen is when you just listen, uh, it releases in them oxytocin. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone. Men have it, women have it. Young mothers have a huge amount of it, which allows them to be patient with a screaming infant that just won't go to sleep. And what happens is when oxytocin goes up, cortisol goes down. And so when your spouse is wanting you to listen, they're actually just wanting you to feel cared. They want to feel cared about by you. When they feel cared about by you, the oxytocin goes up, their cortisol goes down, their amygdala calms down, their blood flow goes back up into their upper brain, and then they can come up with their own solution. And every time we give them advice, when they just want to feel heard and felt by us. I, I always tell people that, that during my time in office, Usually if I'd take a call, which I took calls from the public all the time, but if I would just listen patiently, they usually resolve their own issue as I didn't have to interject, but, uh, but that's here again, part of good leadership is good listening skills. But I, I have learned so much today, Mark, I'm, you, you're going to make me, you've made me a better husband, a more caring guy. Not that hopefully I was caring before, but but as we let's sort of close on a night, high note, we've touched on some pretty heavy subject matter that thank you because it's important to me because some of the events that we've had here locally in Augusta recently, I hope that this podcast is really going to help people. But what is something about you, Dr. Mark Goldston, we talk about being vulnerable, that people might not know or suspect? You're a great dancer, maybe? Um. Well, I'll tell you something. Um, eh, what the heck? I haven't said it publicly. Um, every day at 1230 my time, whoever I'm with, and this works great in negotiations, hard negotiations, wherever I am, I stop them. And I say, uh, what are you grateful for? And they could be really angry. I say, look, we'll get back to arguing. Don't worry. You know, I, 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 I kept your place in your argument. What are you grateful for? And they'll say something. And then I say, good, I'm glad to hear that. And I'll get that from everyone in the room. And then I'll say, uh, the reason I, I'm saying that is because on March 3rd of this year, at 1230, my oncologist told me I wasn't going to die. Wow. And And... And I didn't know and you, that. And you I mean, didn't know wow. that, Deke, but you know it. Well, now. I think that that's a good practice. And, I mean, you. And, and he, but he told me, no, no, he told me I'm going to be around for a long while. And, uh, uh, and I have a, I, I have a highly treatable uh, lymphoma, but I'm going to be around for a while. And I haven't shared that <clears> anywhere, but because of my, 
closeness to you, I just shared it with you. Well, I, I will tell you. Is that vulnerable that, enough? That is vulnerable enough, but that is why <laughs> you're a great leader and a great friend. So I, that, you know, I'm blown away, but, but it's a great reminder. You took a negative and worked it into a positive to ask people what they're grateful for every day at 1230. I might have to start using that one as well. Well, Mark, I'm, I'm, we're going to have to wrap it up here, but uh, where can people find you? I mean, you're like the world's most interesting man. So I'm sure people will want to find you. Where, where can they do that? Uh, I have a pretty decent LinkedIn profile. I couldn't say that a year <laughs> ago, but it actually almost looks like me. So if you go to LinkedIn, uh, uh, what you read about me may resonate to what you've heard from me. Uh, I have a website, markgoulston.com. And my podcast, my wake up call is rocking and rolling, and uh, and if you go there, I have wonderful guests <laughs> like like Deke Copenhaver, uh, Ken Blanchard, Larry King, Jordan Peterson, Esther Wojcicki, uh, Dory Clark, uh, uh, some uh, some of the top women leaders in the world, and so that's rocking and rolling too. So I hope you'll check that out and. Uh, uh, and that's more than enough. And then if you go to Amazon, you can find you know, my nine books there. <laughs> you, uh, if you, look yeah, you are humble. But as I say, you're, you're very accomplished as well, my friend. But thank you so much. And we will stay in touch regularly now. And we talked about that at the beginning of the show or before we went on air. But, but thank you. And thank you for being a wonderful influence in my life. And I think nothing happens by chance. We ran into each other in Los Angeles all those years ago for a reason. And I think that's to do some good in the world. Well, and I, I'm going to be around for a while, but I feel a, an urgency to make sure we get that going. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being my guest, dropping the mic and we are out.